All right, guys. Um, I want to move forward in, in Acts. I want to try and get through a whole lot of material kind of quickly tonight. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 4, verse 13 through 22. And just to bring you back up to speed, Peter and John have been brought for trial after healing a man who had been crippled for over 40 years. The problem for the priestly order was not that the man had been healed. Okay, That was apparent. They could not argue that. But their problem was that he was healed in the name of the Jesus they had crucified. You see where that would be a problem? That the name of the man they crucified to get rid of was being claimed as the power that could now heal people. And so after the healing, Peter and John made their way to the part of the temple called Solomon's Porch. And while the man who had been healed clung to them, Peter preached Jesus Christ as God's glorified servant, the holy and righteous one, and the one that God had raised from the dead. He preached that by faith in Jesus' name, and Jesus' name alone, the man was made well, and that this Jesus would one day return to restore all things. Finally, Peter brought down somewhat of a a theological hammer that they just could not accept. And that was in in verse 12 of the fourth chapter. And it says that salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people. And we must be saved by it. And so that brings us to Acts chapter 4 verse 13. And we're going to read the entire passage. And then I'm going to try and break, break it down a little bit. Verse by verse. We see in verse 13, it says, When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in response. After they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred with, among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign, evident to all who live in Jerusalem, has been done through them, and we cannot deny it. However, so this does not spread any further among the people. Let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to preach or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this man, or this sign of healing, had been performed on a man over 40 years old. The first thing we see is that the promise of Jesus are being experienced by the apostles. Go back to Matthew chapter 10 verse 16 with me, okay? Matthew chapter 10 verse 16. And we're going to kind of jump through the Gospels a little bit because it's important for us to realize what's going on and why it's going on. And so when we go back to Matthew chapter 10 verse 16, this is what Jesus is saying. He says, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, he, be as shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves. Because we, people will hand you over to Sanhedrins and flog you in their synagogues. Beware of them. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me. To bear witness to them and to the nations. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you should speak. For you will be given what to say in that hour. 
Because you are not speaking, but the spirit of your father is speaking through you. And so the first thing we see is that Jesus had promised them that, that there's going to come a time that you're going to be doing my will. You're going to be proclaiming things in my name and they're going to hand you over to governors. They're going to hand you over to these guys. You're going to stand trial and don't worry about it. Look at now at Luke chapter uh, 21. We go to Luke chapter 21 and we see there. It says, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and, and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. It will lead to an opportunity for you to witness. And so the first thing we see in this very first persecution of the apostles is that, is that it was promised long before this event that it would happen. And so I ask you the question, do you know why we don't see anywhere in Scripture the apostles resisting being arrested? Like, like whenever they're, they're, they're arrested or whenever they're tracked down, whenever they're persecuted, we don't see them really fighting, putting up much of a, a resistance. It's because this is exactly what a follower of Jesus was to expect for his life. Listen to what Peter wrote to the church in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16. Listen to this. It's the same Peter who's standing trial in our text. This is what he says. He says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual was happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah so that you may also rejoice with great joy at the, at the revelation of His glory. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of God, I'm sorry, the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. None of you, however, should suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. Basically what he's saying is that, that you're going to suffer as a Christian. But don't mistake the suffering, the consequences for your bad decisions as persecution as a Christian. Because he says, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he should not be ashamed, but should glorify God in having that name. You see, a follower of Jesus Christ will be a person who actively confronts the world with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are not the attributes of the world, and the world will rebel against these things. And so the first thing we see is that followers of Jesus were to expect persecution. It was a normal, everyday part of their lives. And so we shouldn't think that removed 2,000 years from this scene, that we are exempt from experiencing persecution. In fact, we should, we should measure our life as Christians by whether or not we are ever persecuted. We will experience ridicule, loss of relationships, financial hardship, physical assault, and some of us may experience imprisonment and even death for the name of Jesus. That's just a reality of following Jesus. If you're going to fully give yourself over to what the gospel claims for you. That doesn't seem like a boring, joyless, eventless life, does it? Seems like an adventure. So the first thing we see in tonight's text is that Christ's followers will be persecuted because of their faithfulness. It is a biblical promise 
That if you are living out your faith in the type of obedience Jesus demands, you will be persecuted. You can put it like this. Here's how the principle of persecution goes. Because you proclaim Christ, you are persecuted. And then the opposite is just as true. Because you don't proclaim Christ, you are not persecuted. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? I want to go ahead and put just one little footnote in here. We have seen times in the life of the church to where God has opened up doors uh, for His people to openly proclaim the gospel without fear of persecution. In fact, our country, our nation has experienced such a time in the last, uh, well, for a really long time. But we can see now that, that as our culture is shifting and Christians are no longer the home team in our society, that era of open you know, freedom to proclaim the name of Christ without suffering persecution is coming to an end. And I don't believe it's going to get any better. I'm not trying to be a pessimist. I'm trying to be a realist. I believe that Jesus will come back before it gets any better. And so we have to understand that going forward. We have to understand that persecution is a everyday normal part of life for a Christian. And we should not resist it. We shouldn't go looking for it. Okay? We should not just go looking for trouble, but we should understand that when we're singularly focused on serving Jesus, it's going to happen. It's going to come. So don't be surprised at it. Next, we see the promise of Acts 1.8 manifest in the apostles' ability to preach. Acts 1.8, what does it say? It declares that Jesus' followers will receive what? Power. Acts 1.8, power. We've been talking about power. We've been talking about Jesus came, He died, He was buried, He resurrected, and when He appeared to His, his, his followers, He said in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And so what we see in, in, the, in the Acts account that we're reading about is... Is um, In verse 13, it says, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John, they were amazed at, at the authority and the power they had spoke with. And so the power that the Holy Spirit brings to us enables us to have confidence. You look at Acts 2.29 and we see Peter speaks to the Jews confidently about the scriptures. And then we see that, that power gives boldness. We see it there in verse 13. We see it in, in, in verse 31 that after being persecuted, the, churches, uh, the church prays that they will receive boldness and God gives it to them through the Holy Spirit. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and they continue preaching the gospel in boldness. And then we see in Acts 28, 30 through 31, Paul receives the ability to speak boldly and proclaim the gospel boldly through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the byproduct of receiving the Holy Spirit is a boldness and a confidence to share the gospel. It's a mark of a Christian. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Let's go, we're going to go back into Matthew a lot. But Matthew chapter 10 verse 19 and 20 says this. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you should speak. For you will be given what to say at that hour because you are not speaking, but the Spirit of your Father is speaking through you. Basically what he's saying is that we can have the assurance that our Lord has promised to never leave us or forsake us. That in those times of trial, He will give you exactly the words that you need. He will give you exactly the boldness that you need. He will give you the confidence that you need. 
And so while we shouldn't go looking for trouble, when trouble comes because of our faith, we should, we should at least have faith in, in God enough to trust Him that, that He's got our back. The third thing I want you to see tonight in the text is that persecution is never about you. It's never personal. It's not about you. Look at verses 14 through 17. This is what God's word says. It says, And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in response. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign, evident to all who live in Jerusalem, has been done through them, and we cannot deny it. However, so this does not spread any further among the people. Let's threaten them against what? Speaking to anyone in this name. See, the miracle was not the offense. Do you guys understand that? The Sanhedrin, the, the priestly order, they weren't upset because a man had been healed. They were upset because the name of Jesus was the power that had healed the man. And they had done everything that they could to get rid of this Jesus. Because, because this Jesus was causing them to, to lose control over this religious establishment. This Jesus was challenging the very uh, foundation of the way they lived their lives. And so whenever they snuffed out Jesus, they probably sat back and said, Whew, that, good, good thing we did that. But then what happens? We see that after Jesus is dead, apparently... He, he is raised from the dead. He appears to the apostles. He, he appears to 120. And within days, that 120 turns to 3,000. Men. Not counting the women and children. And then, just days after that, this man is healed at the, at the temple gate. And, and as Peter is preaching, at the end of his sermon... Where he's preaching, preaching, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. He's arrested. And upon his arrest, we see in Acts that 5,000 more men come to know Christ and trust him as their savior. So we have 8,000 men. Not including the women and children. So in a population of a maximum of about 85,000 people in Jerusalem, you have a quarter possibly of the population who all of a sudden are Christians. That is reason for the, the, the powers that be to be very concerned. And so the, they, they, the only thing they can think to do is to continue to persecute Jesus. I don't, I don't even think they understood. They, they couldn't even wrap their minds around it. But they knew that there was something about the preaching of that man's name that was changing people's lives. And it was changing people's lives in such a way that it caused them difficulty in the way they wanted life to go. And so what do we do? We stop people from talking about Jesus. We stop people from proclaiming the name of Jesus. They nailed him to a cross. They put him in a tomb, and that wasn't enough. It couldn't stop him, so, so they continue to persecute Jesus. They continue to try to silence Jesus, and it just doesn't work. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 18. If you don't really believe that persecution is never about you, listen to what Jesus says. He says, you will even be brought before governors and kings because of what? Me. He says, it's not about you. They don't have any problem with you. They have a problem with me. 
They're persecuting me. And then in Matthew 24, 9, Jesus says, They will hand you over for persecution. They will even kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Because of my name. And so that's why I'm confident that when persecution comes to me, I can rest assured that Jesus has my back because it's his battle to begin with. He can fight for himself. And when I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing as a Christian, sharing the gospel, living a, a life of faith that is full of the fruits of the Spirit, that's going to rub people the wrong way. That's going to, to annoy my family. That's going to, to be uh, objectionable to people who don't want to believe in absolute truth. They don't want to be told that they're wrong. They don't want to hear the name of Jesus. But as I'm living that out... And people come and persecute me. I can stand there knowing that the Holy Spirit is going to give me the courage, the boldness, and the confidence to say exactly what I need to say. Because it's not my fight. I don't have to defend God. God can do a good enough job of defending himself. I just have to sometimes get out of the way. And let the Holy Spirit do his job through me. So it is not personal. It's not the Christian the world hates and wishes to be rid of. It's not the charitable acts and the generous lifestyle of the Christian the world wishes to snuff out. It's the name of Jesus. Today's wisdom wants you to believe that there are no absolutes. You can determine your own truth. You can serve whatever higher power you choose for yourself. As long as you aren't harming anyone else, you can do what you want. The world's wisdom wants you to believe that there is, there is a... Um, that if there is a God, he, he surely wouldn't allow anyone to endure an eternity in hell. Today's wisdom wants you to believe that there are many roads to the same God. And as long as you are sincere in your belief, God will accept you based solely on your merits as a good person. So you can see why the gospel would be offensive to some people. 1 Corinthians 4, 18-25 gives us some insight into why the world is so hostile towards Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's God's power to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the understanding of the experts. Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater, the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. For the Jews ask for a sign, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. You know, all of these things that, that the world says that, that it's okay for us to settle with, these are all nice sounding things on the surface, but it's simply not true. God's wisdom is simple. God said it and that settles it. If God said it, that settles it. God said there are no other gods but Him. God said there is no other way to Him but through faith in Jesus. God said those who reject Jesus in this life will endure an eternity in hell. God said hell will be full of people who were sincerely wrong about salvation. And those are the realities of this life. The reason the name of Jesus is so offensive to the world is because the name Jesus forces people to choose. The name Jesus eliminates the option of indecisiveness. 
You either accept and obey Jesus or you don't. Those who accept and obey Jesus receive eternal life in the presence of their heavenly Father. And those who don't receive the full punishment deserved for their sins. These are the realities of the gospel. This is how life works. So the Sanhedrin, in verse 18, this is what they say. So they called for them and ordered them not to preach or teach at all in the name of Jesus. See, it's not the miracle they have a problem with. It's his name. And guys, I love what Peter says next. This is a perfect example. You have to understand, Peter was a fisherman. And just weeks before, Peter was running from people denying the name of Jesus. He was not a superhero. He was not a super saint. Peter was just a guy who had been confronted with the truth of who Jesus was and he agreed with God on who Jesus was and he let that change his life. That's all Peter was, was a regular guy from a regular background with a, with a regular education. He wasn't a super educated guy. He wasn't a scholar. He, he wasn't some theological genius. He wasn't a superhero. He was a regular guy. And this is what Peter says in verse 19. He says to them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. Gotcha. What do they say? Because if they say, well, yeah, you got to listen to God, then they have to let them go without doing anything. But if they say, no, no, you got to listen to us, then because all the people are giving glory to God, all the people are giving God the glory for what has happened, people are, are giving God credit for this. They're saying, this is totally God's deal. This man was crippled for 40 years from birth. This has to be God. And they did it in Jesus' name. And so there's got to be something to Jesus with God. And so the Sanhedrin now is in a really big situation. They don't know what to say. Think back. This is, this is how they knew. This is how you know that Peter and John were filled with the Spirit of God. Because it's the same Spirit that allowed Jesus to do these things. Look at Matthew twenty-two, fifteen through 22 It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap Jesus by what He said. They sent their disciples to Him with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are, a, you are truthful and teach truthfully the ways of God. You defer to no one. You don't show partiality. Tell us, therefore, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But perceiving their malice, Jesus said, Why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. So they brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them, Caesar's, they, were, they said back to him. Then he said to them, therefore give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. He answered them in such a way that, that, that they weren't smart enough to see that coming. He says, give to Caesar's what's Caesar's, give to God what's God and, and move on with life. Here's a better example in Matthew 21. It says in verse 23, When he entered the temple complex, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him and was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question, and if you answer it for me, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Where did John's baptism come from? Here's another issue of a man who was doing things Claiming that God was telling him to do things. And all the people heralded John as a prophet. 
And so all the people were supporting John as a prophet of God. But they didn't didn't like that. They didn't acknowledge John as a prophet. And so then they begin to argue among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the crowd because everyone thought John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Peter and John are by the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus to say those things to the Pharisees are essentially saying the exact type of thing to the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin. They're saying, you you tell us, should we listen to God or should we listen to you? You decide. And of course, we see that in verse 20, um, well, we see in, in, in verse 21, they didn't decide, they just threatened them further. Okay? Kind of shook them up a little bit. But look at verse 20. It says, For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have heard and seen, or seen and heard. Even in the face of persecution, Peter and John are convinced that the name of Jesus is the only name that brings salvation to people. And they cannot stop talking about it. They were, they were absolute in their decision to do what he had told them to do. They would... Or there would be no hiding. Guys, do you know that in the New Testament there's no such thing as a secret disciple? We talk about that sometimes in the church. We call people secret disciples. They're the people who claim to be Christians, but they either don't want to come to church or they don't want to be baptized. They don't want to make any public profession of faith. And we, we kind of let them off the hook and we say secret disciple. Because there's a lot of preachers who won't go as far as to say that if you are not willing to outwardly and boldly live as a Christian and proclaim the life and work of Jesus Christ, then you have no claim to the name of Jesus Christ in your life. I have no problem saying this because Jesus had no problem saying this. Look in Matthew 10, verse 32 and 33. Jesus makes this principle clear when he says, Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Peter and John are saying, Do to us what you must, but we cannot deny our Lord. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. He is the one who will return and will will reign as King of His creation for eternity. We cannot be silent. We cannot stop speaking about what we know is true. And I'll close with this illustration. There was a... Back in the 1800s, there was an incredible occurrence of of deaths among women who gave birth in European hospitals. Back in the 1800s, if you were a woman and you went to the hospital to give birth... There was a 4 out of 10 chance that you were going to die from a, from a perpetual fever caused by blood poisoning. Okay? And so, so there was this, this crazy thing that, that like you, you literally had a 40% chance as a woman of dying for giving birth in a European hospital. And so, so in, in 1847, a Hungarian physician named Ignaz, Ignaz Simmelweiss theorized that if doctors would simply begin washing their hands between procedures, the spread of the perpetual fever could be dramatically reduced. See, what Ignaz Semmelweis discovered was that, it was that doctors, and this is going to gross you out, is that doctors would sometimes 
come straight from the morgue doing an autopsy on a dead body to giving birth. And there's a lot of blood and stuff involved in both. And they weren't washing their hands. And they weren't using gloves of any type. And so, and so Ignash Semmelweis, he, he basically just kind of put common sense together. And he said, I think if we just start washing our hands, we can save a lot of lives. And so that's what he did. He started, he started making his interns wash their hands. And it went from 40% to less than 1% mortality rate among women who gave birth in, in European hospitals. And so he's like, I, I've got the answer here. We can save millions of lives. If we'll just start washing our hands. And you know what happened? The established medical community ridiculed him and mocked him and told, told him that he was crazy and that there was nothing to this. Because they didn't want to take the extra time to wash their hands. Even though he had empirical evidence and he was publishing journals and articles to support his evidence, they didn't want to wash their hands. So you know what they did? They fired him. And so what does he do? He takes to the streets. He starts stopping pregnant women on the sidewalk saying, whatever you do, don't have your child in a hospital. Have your child at home. Hire a midwife. Make her wash her hands. And so he does this thinking, you know, if these people would just listen to me, I can save so many lives. Eventually, he was institutionalized. Even though he was completely sane and right, he was put in a mental hospital for being insane. You know what the ironic thing about Ignaz Semmelweis is? One time, one time he was trying to escape. And he was beaten by the hospital staff. And you know what Ignaz Semmelweis died from? The same blood poisoning and perpetual fever that was passed on to him by the unwashed fists. Of the medical staff. He died at 47 years old. Can you imagine knowing that you have information. That if people will just hear it. And listen to you. You can save their lives. We have a gospel. We have a savior. Who has given us power. To save people's lives. With the message of his redemption for them. And we have no excuse. To not share it. You guys have heard me say. Given the example of, of the atheist. Who said I have no respect for a Christian. Who believes they have the answer for the world. But won't share it. How much hate do you have to have. To believe that you can send people to heaven. And not tell them about it. Even if you're wrong. How much hate do we have to have for people. To believe that we have the answer. To eternity. And not share it with people. Guys, I hope you have a good Thanksgiving. I really do. I'm planning on having a good Thanksgiving. I love you guys. But I don't want you to ever think that you have an excuse or a, a, a cop-out or, or some kind of pass on sharing your faith boldly and confidently. If you struggle with that, then, then you need to, to get before God and beg Beg for Him to fill you with the Holy Spirit in such a way that you can live more, more glorifying to Him. Let's pray.